Hello, and welcome to Tabs Not Spaces. It's Saturday, September 19th, and this is what you need to know today. Since GNOME released version 3.38 just hours after our last show, you'll likely know all about it by now. In brief, the update brings a reworked applications grid that allows the user to rearrange items within it, has started integrating some functionality from GNOME tweaks into the main UI, and has finally added a dedicated restart option to the system menu in the shell. Meanwhile, the project has also announced a change to its versioning scheme, which will see the next stable release being tagged as version 40. One of the developers has written a forum post explaining the abrupt change, and his words under the first point in the FAQ section of that post are quite revealing, if a little surprising, given the history of GNOME. The text suggests that the project has recognized how past changes have caused major disruption to its users, and hints that future updates will be far less radical. And wanting to carry users and developers along with the project was also the theme of a separate blog post on extensions management, in which another author promised that a more collaborative approach will help create a successful and robust ecosystem around GNOME going forward. IBM has formally announced the availability of its MQ messaging middleware for the Raspberry Pi platform. The code had been out in the wild for some time but gone largely unnoticed, which is likely why the company has chosen to bring attention to it now. While NQ is usually found in heavyweight server environments, this implementation has been demonstrated running happily on Raspberry Pi Zeros. The current codebase doesn't support all of the functionality of NQ proper, and it's also tagged as a developer edition for now, meaning that there's no formal support on offer, over and above being able to raise issues in the project's GitHub repository. Mozilla made several announcements in recent days that drive home its commitment to cut costs, apart from spending on activism. When Firefox Send was revealed as being used to distribute malware earlier in the year, Mozilla shut the service down, with promises that the product would return after being improved. However, that temporary suspension has now become permanent, with the organization dumping the Firefox Send service, along with another application that allowed users to easily sync text notes between their mobile and desktop browsers. But while these two popular services were being dropped, Mozilla announced a new initiative designed to collect data to help it pressure YouTube to make its recommendation algorithm more transparent. Mozilla has long believed that YouTube's AI can lead users to videos that they'd be better off not watching, and has now produced extensions for Chrome and Firefox that allow users to report videos that they later regret viewing, and collect information about how they stumbled upon them. Mozilla has promised to keep the data generated anonymous, and intends to publicly share its findings down the line in hopes of influencing AI product development at companies like YouTube. And lastly, the Mozilla Foundation yesterday helped co-launch a new open-source tool for tracking keywords and conversations on Twitter, Reddit, 4chan, and 8chan. In the future additional platforms such as Parler and Gab will also gain coverage by the service, which is intended to be used by researchers, journalists, and activists, to track disinformation online. Meantime, anyone still holding on to an old version of Firefox for Android because they don't like the redesigned update, or its lack of support for many extensions, might want to reconsider their decision. A security researcher has discovered that the browser can easily be hijacked by another user connected to the same Wi-Fi network, and cause the victim's phone to execute arbitrary Android intent commands. Since new Linux laptops seem to be appearing almost every week now, I'm going to skim over the details of three new offerings, but there'll be more information in today's show notes. Spanish company Slimbook has introduced two new models, which look to offer better value for money than most. The 14 and 15-inch Ultrabooks are housed in ABS and aluminum, and offer a choice of 10th-generation Intel CPUs coupled with up to 32GB of RAM. The smaller model weighs in at just under 3 pounds, and in its base configuration will set you back less than $600. 
At the opposite end of the spectrum, Tuxedo Computers has introduced a portable gaming rig that features desktop Intel CPUs. The new Luggable can be outfitted with up to 128GB of RAM, offers a choice of dedicated NVIDIA graphics cards, and comes fitted with a 97Wh-hour battery that ought to be good for around 4 hours of active use. Naturally none of this comes cheap, and the new machine retails for upwards of $2,800. And staying with hardware for a moment, Pine64 is now accepting pre-orders for the Manjaro Community Edition of the Pine Phone. The branded device is being offered in a base configuration with 2GB of RAM and 16GB of storage for $150, while another 50 will snag you an upgrade to a model sporting an extra gigabyte of RAM, twice the storage, and a bundled convergence dongle that lets the phone connect to an external monitor, keyboard, and mouse. However, the opening of the order window didn't go quite as smoothly as Pine might have liked, as the company briefly had to close its online store having discovered that it had been infiltrated by a malicious bot. Pine doesn't believe that any customer data was compromised by the breach, which it laid at the feet of a vulnerable WordPress plugin. The contentious issue of SystemD has again raised its head within the Debian project. Back in July, users noticed that the init script had been dropped from the network manager package, breaking compatibility for those not running SystemD. But the maintainer didn't respond to the bug that had been filed until one of the users added a non-maintainer upload that rolled back the change, and the issue got picked up on social media. A standoff has now developed, with the maintainer adamant that he won't restore the init script to the package, and the bug has been categorized as a wishlist item. GitHub has promoted its command line interface tool into production status. The client has gained extra functionality since it was launched in beta back in February, and now looks to be a practical option for managing day-to-day -day workflows on the platform. And having listened to user feedback, the company has also added support for using the CLI tool with repositories hosted on GitHub Enterprise Server. The Tor project has revealed that this year's Bug Smash fundraiser has been more successful than it had hoped for. The event raised over $106,000, with fully 60% of the donations coming in the form of cryptocurrency. The project will now start tagging existing bugs on GitLab so that donors can see where their money is going to be spent and has promised that promotional swag from the fundraising event is now in the post to its supporters. And finally, if you see more coverage than usual of free software issues in the mainstream press over the weekend, then the Digital Freedom Foundation will have done its job. Saturday, September 19th has been designated as this year's Software Freedom Day, and although participation has waned in recent years, we can still expect to see many teams around the world holding events in an effort to raise public awareness about free and open-source software. And that wraps things up for now. There's more about today's stories in the show notes, and you can visit our website at tabsnotspaces.com to read a full transcript of the podcast, or to contact and support the show. We'll be back on Wednesday.